0: Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is the Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 201. Before we start, I'd like to thank Matt Sherman for liking the Week in Doubt Facebook page, and another shout-out to Thor Holt. I've been enjoying his Write with Courage podcast. I actually just listened to his interview with writer and professor of economics Mark Blythe. It helped keep me sane during the long ride home from work today. Good stuff, man. Keep it up. Oh, yeah, and I meant to say, as someone with a graphic design degree, I really like the album or thumbnail art for the podcast, too. Just saying. So last week I mentioned a woman by the name of Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe. Hope I didn't butcher that. A mother and charity worker who is being held captive in Iran. Sadly, I hadn't even been aware of the story until Anna Nash Steer, one of Nazanin's relatives, messaged me with a link to a online petition. Since then, I've been reading up on Nazanin's story, and this has been going on for a while now. There's news stories about her imprisonment that go as far back as May, including one penned, or should I say typed, by Nazanin Boniadi. I think it is, a British-American actress of Iranian descent, uh, perhaps best known for her role on Homeland. So last week, I signed the petition, shared the link on Facebook, and briefly mentioned Nazanin's story on the show. But I feel like I need to do more. I know it's not much, but I thought maybe if I read a news article about Nazanin and her family's plight, it might help keep the story alive in people's minds and help spread awareness. And this one's actually from The Mirror. And I don't know exactly what kind of reputation The Mirror has on the other side of the pond. I have, um... Friends and fellow podcasters in the UK, uh, maybe you guys can fill me in on whether or not the Mirror is a good paper. But anyway, this is dated August 11th, so um, wow, just a couple days ago. And it's entitled, Agony of British Father Whose Charity Worker Wife Is Imprisoned Waiting to Be Tried by Iran's Quote-Unquote Hanging Judge. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe has been held in an Iranian prison since March on unknown charges, and now her husband Richard Ratcliffe is speaking out. It was a day like any other for Richard Ratcliffe dropping his wife and child off at Heathrow Airport for their flight to Iran. His partner of seven years, Nazanin, was taking their two-year-old daughter, Gabriella on holiday to see her grandparents in Tehran, a trip she would do often. After a two-week holiday, they were due to return on April 3rd. They never did. I first received a phone call from her brother, Richard told Mirror Online. He told me not to panic, but they had not managed to board their flight. Over the coming days, the very worst was going through Richard's mind. He breathed a huge sigh of relief when he first heard through Nazanin's mother that she was okay, and that his daughter was safe. Initially, Iranian authorities claimed that the reason Nazanin and Gabriella were not allowed to fly was because of administrative passport issues which would be resolved in a matter of days. Richard was growing frustrated with what he thought were simply bureaucratic holdups, but then the reality of the situation set in. Nazanin, a charity worker for the Thomson Reuters Foundation, And I looked it up, and yes, the Thomson Reuters Foundation is affiliated with uh, the Reuters News Agency, and I believe they focus on things like um, supporting and promoting independent journalism and uh, human and civil rights, etc., Uh, But anyway, uh, yeah, so a charity worker for the Thomson Reuters Foundation was soon moved to an unknown location in Kerman province, located 1,000 kilometers south of Tehran. There she is being held in solitary confinement. Richard said that day at Heathrow Airport all feels quite surreal in a sense. We weren't so much thinking about having an emotional goodbye before the flight. We were just concerned with Gabriella, who was running around all over the place and giggling and laughing like kids do. As parents, we were just trying to keep her calm, and I would see them again in a few weeks. But Richard didn't see them again, and his life has been on hold ever since. Without access to a lawyer, Nazanin has signed a confession under duress, the details of which are unknown at this stage, and has been interrogated on issues relating to quote-unquote national security. Despite having yet to be charged, she has now been told that she is set to face a trial at the hands of the notorious judge Gesum Salavati, I think, known as the Hanging Judge. As the head of the 15th branch of the Islamic Revolutionary Court, he earned the nickname following a string of accusations that he has carried out miscarriages of justice in high-profile trials involving foreign political activists, lawyers, journalists, and ethnic and religious minorities. And they have a picture of the judge and definitely a kind of uh, intimidating-looking guy. Not a guy you'd want deciding your fate and says he is also known for delivering lengthy prison sentences and ordering that defendants be lashed. In many cases, he has ordered defendants to be executed. He handled all of the high-profile cases, Richard said. Honestly, it was such a blow when we heard that the case was going to a trial, and then I'm told he's the judge. It doesn't send me into a panic thinking on it, but if I dwell on it, in my mind, there's an anxiety there. Richard has been on leave from where he works as an accountant, popping into the office when he can, but now he campaigns on his wife's behalf full-time. After contacting Red Cross and Amnesty International, charity workers were able to put Richard in touch with families who have been through similar experiences. That's when I realized through their accounts what she must be going through, he said. The isolation, the accusations, the interrogations, the separation from his daughter is equally as painful. After Nazanin was detained by Iranian authorities, their daughter, Gabriella had her UK passport taken away and was placed in the care of her grandparents. Richard said at first she would refuse to eat or sleep unless she was with her granny. It's obviously incredibly difficult for her, but she's growing into it, and I think her Farsi is getting better than her English. And for Richard, one of the toughest moments is yet to come. This weekend marks his and Nazanin's seventh wedding anniversary. It's not the first they will spend apart. Last year he was away with work doing an audit. However, upon his return, the family celebrated with a family trip to the beach. This year will be a solemn occasion, however. He added, We're going to have a gathering of family members and friends just to mark the occasion and let her know that she is not forgotten. Since deciding to go public with his wife's case, Richard's petition to raise awareness of her plight has reached almost 800,000 signatures. He said it's obviously painful, but there's some comfort in having the support of those around you. Earlier this week, Number 10 issued a statement confirming that Prime Minister Theresa May has raised Nazanin's case with Iran. The statement read the prime minister raised concerns about a number of consular cases involving dual nationals, including that of Mrs. Zaghari Ratcliffe, and stressed the importance of resolving these cases as we work to strengthen our diplomatic relationship. Yeah, so definitely a very harrowing story. And whenever I hear stories about that, about people being held captive unjustly abroad, uh, it really gets to me. If you have an ounce of empathy, you can, you know, it just makes you cringe trying to imagine what it must be like for both Nazanin and her family. In Nazanin's case, being separated from her daughter and husband and locked up for unknown, I'm imagining, political reasons, probably. And then the case of the family, especially the husband and the daughter, trying to live with this awful knowledge that your wife or your mother is locked up and who knows what's happening to her. So I wish them well with that petition. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have the link in front of me. If you want to sign the petition, I gave the link out in last week's show and it's also on the Weekend Out Facebook page. Uh, And it's a change.org petition. Uh, I believe. So it should be easy enough to find. But yeah, I wish them well with that petition. I hope this horrible story ends up with some kind of happy resolution, seeing uh, this family that's been torn apart reunited. Horrible stuff. And hard as it is to segue out of a story as horrible as that, I guess I have no choice but to move on. Now, uh, this story comes from friend of the show, Joe Pugsley, of Voice of Doom fame. He sent me a link to an interesting Patheos story entitled, Atheist Mom Forced Into Court-Ordered Christian Counseling. And no, this isn't in the uh, laughing and disbelief section. Won't get fooled again. Uh, This is from the um, atheist channel or blog you know, within Patheos, entitled Progressive Secular Humanist, and uh, it's by Michael Stone. And whoa, this story is almost uh, a year old. Uh, Let's hope it's still interesting and relevant. Uh, (laughs) Here we go. Um, Joe sent it to me, so I I trust his judgment. It should be a good story. I just, uh, I glanced over it, but I didn't read the whole thing yet. In a flagrant church-state violation, a New Mexico mom loses her children after refusing to attend court-mandated Christian counseling sessions. KRQE reports Holly Salzman was hoping to get some help co-parenting her 11-year-old twin boys with her ex-husband, but instead she says she got 10 court-ordered religious sessions that she did not want. And here's a quote from uh, Holly Salzman. I walked into the session, and the very first thing she said to me was, I start my sessions by praying. When I expressed my concerns that I didn't pray, she said, Well, this is what I do, and she proceeded to say a prayer out loud. Salzman, a single mother of two, said she felt so offended and disgusted that she stopped going to the court-ordered sessions. The result was that the court took her kids away, Salzman reports. It's probably the worst thing I've ever been through in my life. Well, at this point, <clears throat> and once again, I just glance over the story. So so in a way, I'm hearing it in depth for the first time along with you guys as I read it. I wonder if she voiced her misgivings or whatnot to the court. Did she let the court know that she felt uncomfortable working with this person? you know, co-parenting counselor or whatever it is who had this weird kind of um, religious bent. I think that would have been the responsible thing to do. And maybe that's what she did. If the court tried to make her go to this particular counselor who insisted on pushing her own religious beliefs on a Holly Salzman, then I could see how, you know, as a form of protest, she, she might decide to stop going. Uh, but if she just stopped going without voicing her concerns or her objections, then that that may have been irresponsible. So, so far, um, this does sound like some kind of infringement on the separation of church and state. And in a way, this kind of reminds me of the case of Anonymous Steve, that father from Britain who I once interviewed and haven't heard from in a while. Where are you at, Steve? <laughs> and, uh who uh, I believe he's a psychologist, I think. I forget his exact occupational title. But he had gone through what I think was a rather amicable divorce. And it wasn't his wife. It was uh, the court, the judge, tried to force him to bring his children to Catholic mass. So, so far, this story reminds me a little bit of that Although, of course, Steve is in the U.K. and Holly Salzman is here in the U.S. And I don't know if English law recognizes the separation of church and state in the sense that we enjoy it here, or at least in theory. In order to regain custody of her children, Salzman was forced to complete the faith-based counseling despite her objections. Okay, so there it is. She did object. And uh, still, um, according to the story, she was forced to complete the sessions with this woman. And they're not just saying that this was some weird or one-off counselor with an idiosyncratic habit of trying to drag her religion into her work. Here, they're actually calling it faith-based counseling. But I'll continue. And despite the fact that she is not religious and does not believe in God... KRQE reports that in every counseling session, there were handouts with quotes from Psalms and other religious sources and religious-based homework, such as one activity titled, Who is God to me? You've got to be kidding me. So if the court was aware of all this and even endorsing it, mandatory religious homework and all this, so far, this is a clear violation of the separation of church and state. In a series of undercover videos, the court-mandated Christian counselor repeatedly forced the issue of God and Christianity into the counseling sessions, despite the fact that her client had no interest, and found the discussion of religion in the context of the counseling sessions offensive. And I would find that offensive, too. And I mean, of course, because I'm an atheist, but maybe even if I happen to be a Christian, who you know, wasn't a fundamentalist, uh, didn't believe in dragging my faith into everything, I might be upset that I'm supposed to be taking some kind of parenting course you know, or co-parenting course. Instead of just giving me sound advice about what steps I should take to make things go more smoothly for my children or whatever, you're pushing religion on me and making everything about religion. Uh, I-, I would be offended too. In one secretly recorded session, the counselor told Salzman, the meaning in my life is to know, love, and serve God. If you want to explore how God was in your past, how God was in your life and not in your life, I know you don't believe in God, which is fine, but I know at some point he was in your life in some way. And, you know, just what a load of garbage. Keep it to yourself and just act like a professional person. Parent and counselor or whatever your title is. Does this lady and the judge for that matter think that you need to be a Christian in order to be a good parent? I'm sure there's plenty of crappy Christian parents out there. I, I'm not a parent, but I would imagine that all you need to be a good parent is probably common sense, empathy, and patience. You know, you don't need a bunch of religious dogma stuffed down your craw in order to be a good parent. In fact, I might argue that pushing religion on your kids might be a good way to screw them up. But it continues, And it is heartbreaking to note that if a mother does not quietly endure the abuse of the obnoxious Christian counselor, her children will be taken from her by the courts. Commenting on the story, Peter Simonson, well, to pause for a moment, You know, I was just reading that story about Nazanin being held captive in Iran and torn away from her child, and we like to think that we live in this modern, progressive society where we're not ruled by a theocracy or anything like that, but all too often we hear about these stories of the creeping infringement on the separation of church and state. And sometimes when you hear these stories, it does almost feel like you're living in a a theocracy where you have someone who, in essence, is being threatened with being separated from their children if they don't go through with this Christian counseling. Uh, But once again, commenting on the story, Peter Simonson, ACLU executive director, said, "...no one should be put in a position where they are forced to accept training or therapy that violates their own religious beliefs and morals." We've got protections in our country under the Bill of Rights. Let's see, and this is worded kind of oddly. We've got protections in our country under the Bill of Rights are intended to try and stop that. Um, that doesn't make any sense. We've got protections in our country under the Bill of Rights. And something, his point is that, you know, the actions of this judge and this counselor are kind of trying to interfere with that. On the face of it, it looks pretty problematic. Quote-unquote problematic is an understatement. This is despicable and a clear violation of Salzman's civil and constitutional rights. To be clear, there is nothing wrong with being a Christian counselor, but as a Christian counselor, one must be honest and upfront with one's clients about one's biases. In addition, clients must be free to refuse Christian-based counseling if they are not Christian. Otherwise, the counselor is being unethical and unprofessional. Hear, hear. Clearly, it is wrong for a court to mandate Christian counseling, and it is wrong and unethical for a licensed counselor to force religion on a court-mandated client who is not interested in religion. As for the Christian counselor identified as Mary Pepper, according to reports, her proselytizing to court-mandated clients is not her only unethical activity. Pepper does her court-mandated counseling surreptitiously at the public library to avoid overhead and, in so doing, illegally forces her local government to subsidize her business expenses. Plus, she demands cash payments from her court-mandated clients, presumably to thwart the IRS. As for Pepper's background, she is a Catholic extremist who used to be a quote-unquote parent educator at Project Defending Life, a radical anti-abortion group. The good news is that Salzman completed the counseling sessions and she has her kids back again. Let's hope she gets a good lawyer and sues everybody responsible for this despicable debacle. Okay, so unless I'm missing something that maybe puts all this into a different context and and puts the judge in a better light, I mean, if the judge knew what was going on and and he knew about this particular counselor, her kind of extremist background, her religious bias, uh, her tendency to proselytize to her uh, court-mandated clients— Uh, Not only should he be ashamed, I I think he should be disbarred or removed from the bench, whatever the proper term is. Uh, So another really disturbing story, at least this one has a good ending, and she's done with the counseling, and she's back with her kids. But I'm sure having to go through all that probably left uh, a bad taste in her mouth. I think she probably feels rightly violated. Okay, so this next story is probably going to seem a little petty and self-serving, but I couldn't resist. The irony was too delicious. So if you're a regular listener, you've probably heard me good-naturedly complain about the time atheism is unstoppable. A fairly popular atheist YouTuber who I think I'm relatively friendly with, uh, I think, once told me I had a regressive beta male stance on race because briefly in passing I dared to mention things like slavery and Jim Crow when talking about the disproportionately high rate of crime and poverty uh, among African Americans. And I realized the irony in the fact that for someone who claims they're not interested in talking about race— I sure seem to bring it up a lot, uh, but once again, I couldn't refuse this story. So to put things into context, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, or well, about a year ago on YouTube, I made a video in which I defended AIU's criticisms of Jank Yuger concerning Jank's intellectually dishonest coverage of the Dylan Roof case. Now I think Dylan Roof is a monstrous piece of crap, and I'm outraged and sickened by what he did. He was the deranged white supremacist kid with the Mo Howard bowl cut who murdered all those people in a uh, southern church. So as much as I despise Dylan Roof, I still value intellectual honesty and fact-based reasoning. And I thought Jenk had let his emotions cloud the facts regarding the actions of the judge in the case. And it wasn't just me. Jenk's good friend and co-host Ben Mankiewicz also disagreed with Cenk on the topic during the live stream, no less, which made for interesting viewing. So I agreed with AIU, all was right with the world. That is until one of his subs took issue with my view that we're all so closely related genetically that it may not even make scientific sense to try to separate us into different racial groups. So you're probably sick of hearing this story But the sub or subscriber in question said, you may not believe in race, but you better know what neighborhood you're in. Or something like that. And I quickly agreed, you know, true story. That, yeah, even if you're agnostic on the question of whether or not race is a scientifically valid concept, it's still a very real concept, sociologically speaking, with serious sociological implications and repercussions, And yeah, people are tribal. We divide ourselves among ethnic, ideological, and quote-unquote racial lines. So even though we're all homo sapiens, if a pasty white guy like myself, I'm the world's palest Italian, me and Leonardo DiCaprio. uh, If I find myself in the quote-unquote wrong neighborhood at night, things might not turn out so well. But I continued that I didn't think that African Americans are disproportionately mired in poverty and violent crime because they're somehow inferior, and that it at least, in part, is probably to do with historical and sociological factors. Yes, it's true black people in America today aren't being whipped and forced to pick cotton, but I think there is this kind of sociological domino or cause and effect phenomenon where people have to struggle to overcome or shrug off the inherited baggage of their environment. So you have a group of people that start out as slaves, even after they're granted their freedom, they're still looked at as second-class citizens or as the other segregation, Jim Crow, etc., marginalized into impoverished ghettos. I don't think we're supposed to say ghettos anymore, but hey, despite how I may sound right now, I'm not really one for political correctness. So marginalized into impoverished ghettos, etc., Uh, Successive generations born into these same impoverished, crime-ridden environments. And as I said, this isn't an excuse for violent crime or to not try, as hard as it may be, to lift yourself up out of your negative environment or to overcome a negative upbringing. But I think as cliche as it sounds, to understand the present, it helps if you have an understanding of the past. In a way, it reminds me of Native Americans. No one's hunting indigenous people and selling their scalps anymore. At least I hope not. Uh, But we can still see the effects of the past on Native Americans in the present. Living on reservations, still bearing European Christian names, um, poverty, alcoholism, etc., etc., or using myself as an example, I come from predominantly Italian and Irish working-class stock, and the apples kind of landed pretty close to that tree. Once again, yeah, I don't think you should use the limits of your background or upbringing as an excuse, and you should do your best to make something of yourself, but there are some real sociological phenomena and uh, pulls and pressures at work, I think. But anyway, uh, back to my petty attempt at vindication. So Atheist Rue and I are both admirers of Sam Harris, and I actually want to stop to blame Sam Harris for the genesis of this episode. I was listening to Sam's Waking Up podcast, as I am wont to do, and the most recent episode was about race, and Sam's guest was Professor Glenn Lowry, and man, oh man, the delicious irony. Sam goes on this whole preamble before the discussion really begins, where he invokes the quote-unquote shadow of slavery and Jim Crow, and perhaps somewhat jokingly, to give him the benefit of the doubt, even mentions checking his privilege, something that I've never even said. Oh, Sammy, Sam wise at two. And then ironically, I'm using ironic a lot tonight. I dub it the drinking game word of the week. Uh, Glenn actually pushes back against Sam's politically correct preamble. But enough procrastinating. Uh, here it is. And you're, obviously your background, both in mathematics
1: and statistics and, and social science, makes you really perfectly well-placed to have the kind of conversation we're going to have. I've been wanting to talk about race and racism for a while because it's, it's a topic of just such huge consequence. And it's a topic that, again, attracts a fair amount of logical and moral confusion, which renders people unable to, to reason with, with each other. And this is, just, this is not a problem just across racial lines, and it's not just a problem in public. I mean, frankly, I have white friends who I find I can't have this conversation with because they've become so emotionally hijacked. And they don't realize, from my point of view, they don't realize that almost everything that is coming out of their mouths doesn't make moral or logical or historical or psychological sense. And this really worries me because because I I view the maintenance of civilization and and our moral progress as a species really as as a, a sequence of successful conversations. I've said this many times before on my podcast and and in writing. It seems to me that we we live in perpetual choice between conversation and violence, just as a species. So when I see conversations reliably fail like this, I start to get worried. And so I've been wanting to talk about race, and I just this is just the context of how I set up this conversation. I noticed the conversations you have been having with John McWhorter, and I realized that I had met John at a TED conference. So I got in touch with him, and then he suggested I speak with you. And so, so you are my Virgil, uh, who's going to guide me through this wilderness of error. <laughs> and again, thank you for agreeing to do this. Hope I'm up to the task here. Uh, it's a tall order, actually. And I guess a final preliminary point. I, I feel the need to offer a disclaimer up front because... Here we go. I think you and I are, are going to agree about many things. And, and I'm a little worried about this because, because my staking out some of these positions as a white guy, is going to rub many of our listeners the wrong way. And, I, and I, I really don't want to be in a defensive crouch as we have this conversation. So I think I should just acknowledge up front a, a couple of things that, that should be obvious and it should be obvious that I would acknowledge them. And the first is just that the history of racism in the U.S. has, has obviously been horrific, right? It seems to me no sane person could doubt that. And there's no doubt that racism remains a problem in our society and, and just how big a problem is something that I want us to discuss. But I, you know, I can check my privilege at the outset here. I, I have no doubt that I have reaped many advantages from being white and I have no idea what it's like to grow up as a black man in our society. So, so I, I get that I don't get it. And if there's any way in which my not getting it seems relevant to the issues we're about to touch, I certainly hope you'll point that out to me. But as we drive toward points that many of our listeners will find fairly incendiary, especially coming from a white guy, I just just have to make it clear that it it is obvious how horrible white racism and its consequences have been in the past. And I am fully prepared to believe that the the shadow of slavery and Jim Crow still hangs over our society to a degree that I don't understand in any way, certainly not from my first-person experience. But my goal in this conversation is to get an accurate picture of race and racism and police violence as it occurs now so that we can think about how to move forward. So I just wanted to to erect that bulwark, however ineffectual it will prove to be, because I just have no doubt that we're about to say some things that will lend itself to selective quotation. And I've now learned through, you know, rather cruel experience that some people listen to this podcast just for the pleasure of quoting me out of context in misleading ways. So, you know, but that's with this caveat, which may do me no good whatsoever. I just want to, I want to throw that up before we dive into, into the details.
2: Well, I was just going to comment that, uh, I think you know, your, your caveat is well taken as far as it goes, uh, and that speaks well of you, I would say, but it's such a pity that it's necessary for you to make that kind of elaborate uh, uh, you know, a preemptive uh, move here uh, that um, it bespeaks how um, uh, closed uh, and uh, tortured is the environment in which we're having the conversation. Uh, I mean, I'm Black, all right? Uh, I am if anybody is, I mean, grew up on the South side of Chicago in the 1950s and the 1960s from a working class background, uh, have had many a run in with American racism, uh, you know, all across the board, uh, and, uh, descend from people who had been slaves in the United States. On the other hand, uh, we sit here in the year 2016, uh, 1863 is a century and a half in the past. Um, Jim Crow segregation is a distant memory. Uh, Barack Hussein Obama is about to step down, having served two terms, winning comfortable national elections to the highest office in the land. The commissioners of the police in many of the cities in which police—black community relations are most troubled—are themselves African-American, as often are the administrative officers running the governments of those cities. Um, We are 50 years past the advent of the onset of affirmative action. Um, This is not 1910, 1950, or 1985. This is the year 2016. and The idea that white privilege is such a stain on the country that um, an otherwise rational and intelligent person who happens to be white needs to give an elaborate preamble before they the conversation about race relations in this country, that the benefit of the doubt or the, the, the willingness to hear something that one doesn't agree with without imputing invidious motives to the person who's expressed that view is so rampant that um, a person like yourself needs to, in effect, apologize in advance for having an opinion. Oh, that's, that's awful. That's poisonous. That, that's good. Uh, So that's just Glenn Lowry spotting off, and I don't know how that'll leave me uh, in the minds of some of your viewers uh, who might want to take what I've said out of context as well, but that's where I'm coming from here.
0: Oh, Sam, you regressive beta cuck. (laughs) Checking your privilege, talking about slavery and Jim Crow. I'm just having a bit of fun, but that was an interesting exchange. And I bet you there's probably a lot of Uh, Sam Harris fans out there, kind of, you know, the anti-PC type, that might find themselves actually siding with Glenn Lowry as opposed to Sam regarding that exchange. But anyway, uh, I guess I'll call this episode quits. I was going to do another reading from Chris in the Morning, uh, Love Life and the Whole Karmic Enchilada, but I'm already past the uh, half hour mark. But I think I'm going to keep that going. So hopefully it's not too cringe inducing and you guys kind of like the first one. But well, you guys know a drill. You can like the Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter, subscribe, or leave a review through iTunes. If you want to support the show monetarily, uh, you can do so either through Podbean using the PayPal widget or by going to patreon.com slash out. And for as little as 99 cents, you can uh, help the show out on a monthly basis and quit anytime you want. And of course, there's the YouTube channel, and you might be watching right now. Uh, I guess that's it. So, all right. Thanks, everyone. Till next week.